You're hearing sounds from the post office at 6 Doyer Street in New York's Chinatown. In 2018, it was renamed Mabel Lee Memorial Post Office. Good morning. Can I ask you a few questions? Sure. Hi, thank you so much. What's up? Do, do you know that in 2018, this post office was designated the Mabel Lee Memorial Post Office? No. Do you happen to know who Mabel Lee was? No. No. No, I don't know. Sorry. Unfortunately, I don't. This response is not uncommon. Mabel Lee is honored at this imposing stone building in her community. But as people come and go, buy their stamps, return those impulse pandemic buys, her story is relatively unknown. Mabel Pinghua Lee was a prominent Chinese-American suffragist, a member of the Women's Political Equality League, and the first Chinese-American woman to earn a PhD in economics from Columbia University. She was an activist who fought for women's right to vote. Good for her. What do you think about that? I didn't know, but I'm glad you told me. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. There should be equality. She was, like so many radical, inspirational women who changed history, women who ended up on statues, monuments, and even post offices. And yet, we don't know their stories, or even their names. And so many of these women who fought for American rights never got to become American citizens. While the mainstream suffrage movement declared votes for women, Women like Lee, women of color, immigrants, and Native women who were fighting for the vote were navigating not just their gender, but also questions of immigration, race, and citizenship, which made their fight for votes for women much more complex. This is And Nothing Less, Episode 4, Suffrage in Translation. I'm Rosaria Dawson. And I'm Retta. Never was justice more perfect. Never was civilization higher. Suffragist Matilda Jocelyn Gage wrote that about the Haudenosaunee, or Iroquois, who lived in New York State. We are outside of the home of Matilda Jocelyn Gage. Matilda Jocelyn Gage lived in this house during the most important period of her work, from 1854 to 1898, her death. She offered this home as a station on the Underground Railroad. She wrote The History of Woman Suffrage with Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton in this home. Sally Rush Wagner is the founder and director of the Matilda Jocelyn Gage Foundation in Fayetteville, New York. When she was president of the NWSA, she wrote a series of articles about the Haudenosaunee, and they indicate a personal connection. Gage was close with the Mohawk Nation of the Iroquois. She was honorarily adopted into their wolf clan and invited to join their council of matrons. This was a decision-making body. In other words, a voting body. This was 1893, to be exact. The fact that she was given a real name is significant because the clan mother holds the names. The name Gage was given, Hawanahawi. It can be roughly translated as she who holds the sky or sky carrier. 
It's a name that has some responsibility attached to it. But they're given for special reasons to special allies. The very same year Gage was given power and voting rights by the Mohawk, she was arrested by her own government for voting. As Sally Rush Wagner explains it, long before American women won the right to vote, they lost it. Native American women had political voice long before white people entered this land as settlers. When the suffragists were organizing in the National Women's Suffrage Association, for example, Matilda Jocelyn Gage, who was one of the leaders, said, we're not asking for a new right. We're asking for the restitution of a right that our foremothers had. Gage and her colleague Elizabeth Cady Stanton at the National Women's Suffrage Association, two suffrage intellectuals, were both interested in looking beyond their own culture for ideas and inspiration. And as New York State natives, they did not have to look far. As they saw it, the Six Nations of the Iroquois had social, religious, economic, and political positions that were far superior to their own. The contrast between women citizens in the United States and citizens of the Haudenosaunee nations, day and night, it's polar opposite. Violence against women, almost non-existent before contact. And if it existed, it was dealt with very harshly. For example, when a clan mother chooses to this day the chief that she'll sit beside and advise, she'll place him in position of authority, and she'll remove him as if necessary. That's her responsibility. The women basically ran the economy and were responsible for farming. They were the sacred ones to bring forth life from the land because they were the creators of life. They also made the final decision about whether or not to go to war, which makes sense when you think about men's track record with that. If the men want to go off to war, ain't going to happen if the women say no. And it's both a spiritual authority because they're the ones who have given birth to these men whose lives will be lost. But it's also an economic one, because if men want to go off to war and they don't have any food, they don't have any moccasins, they're not going to get very far. Women like Stanton and Gage even admired the freedom native clothing gave women. White women were drinking arsenic to have whiter skin. They were afraid to go outside without wearing hats and gloves and being totally protected because their skin might get a little bit brown. They corseted to 18-inch waist. By the time you got to be uh, my age, you couldn't stand up straight without your corset because your muscles had atrophied. You'd started corseting when you were 10. And the clothing, 20 pounds of clothing suspended from this tiny encased corseted waist meant mobility was not easy. And of course that affected every part of your life. It wasn't just corsets that were confining upper-class women during Gage and Stanton's time. The laws were also constraining especially for married women. They were basically invisible in the eyes of the law. 
When a woman married in the early 19th century, everything she owned became her husband's property. Everything she earned became her husband's wages. Her children belonged to their father. She had no legal protections against abuse or even rape at the hands of her husband. Given all this, it's easy to understand why a vote would seem so far-fetched. That is, unless you saw that there was another way to live. There are specific suffragists across the United States, women being influenced by seeing the position of Native women, knowing about it through personal contact, knowing about it through the newspapers, knowing about it through books, knowing about it through just the history as people knew the history at that time. Elizabeth Cady Stanton was one of the suffragists that picked up that research and ran with it. She begins to study the prehistoric matriarchies in the 1880s, 90s, when this information becomes widespread. It was part of the strategy saying, look, we're told that our position of inferiority to men and being under the authority of men, being subordinate to men, we're told that that's God-ordained. So they needed something that would say, look, it is neither God-ordained nor biologically determined. They don't want to go to hell. If you demand the right to vote, you're going up against God. That's what they were confronting. And so they needed proof, evidence that, look, it has not always been this way and it is not always this way today. This is what a free woman looks like. This model of indigenous women's rights gave suffragists a vision of something better. But according to Sally Rush Wagner, the same cannot be said of the Native women's experience in 19th century America. Beginning in 1871, the federal government stopped signing treaties with Native nations, outlawed Native governments, and placed Indigenous people under legal federal wardship. As wards of the state, they were granted citizenship if they, quote, adopted the habits of civilized life. But they also experienced violent separation from their land, poverty, and permanent separation from their families. All while this was happening, the suffrage movement was marching forward to demand a greater role in the same government that was erasing Indigenous cultures, and then looking to Native people for inspiration. That's some pretty major irony, right? The irony is that at the same time that United States citizens, women, were taking inspiration and learning this is what we should expect from Native women, the Christianized and civilized policy of the United States government and churches was forcing Native women into the subordinate position of white women. And when there was, in 1878, a law in New York State attempting to force citizenship and the vote on Indian men, the chiefs, the Confederacy Grand Council, met at Onondaga as they've been meeting since before Columbus and continue to meet today to make decisions. 
And their decision was, no, we will not accept citizenship in the United States. Matilda Jocelyn Gage at that time was editing a woman's suffrage paper. And she wrote an editorial in support of the decision of the chiefs. And then she goes on to learn strategy from them. She says, you know, the chiefs went to the White House from all over the land. They went, converged on the White House last New Year's. And that's when the president would be receiving people. And they all present their calling cards on the back of each one of them is a broken treaty. A calling card as in a visiting card, something you left when you made a call on someone. They leave these cards for the president. And she said, you know, maybe we should adopt a strategy like that. Here things get complicated. Native people did not want to be forced to become citizens if it meant erasing their own culture. But unless they were citizens, they couldn't vote in U.S. elections. And without a vote, Native communities couldn't change the discriminatory policies affecting their way of life. And so many made the choice to reject voting rights, at least at first. For some women, some Indigenous women, have talked about how because the Indian Citizenship Act wasn't passed until 1924, 1920 didn't mean anything to them. Those who became United States citizens in cases forced to become United States citizens. But once you're citizens, you want a place at the table. You want to vote. Looking back at the history of suffrage and Native Americans in the 19th and early 20th century shows how acutely voting is linked to citizenship. No citizenship, no vote. This is also true for African-Americans and immigrants coming to the United States. They fought for the right to vote and for citizenship. But at various points in history, not being citizens excluded them from ever entering a voting booth. That's next on And Nothing Less. It has done more to emancipate women than anything else in the world. Susan B. Anthony said that. What do you think she was talking about? Uh, Voting, of course. Nope. Okay, probably something about property rights or the right to control their own earnings. Retta, she was talking about bicycles. Okay, I mean, I like my bike, but I never thought about it emancipating me. Well, here's what else Anthony said. It gives women a feeling of freedom and self-reliance. I stand and rejoice every time I see a woman ride by in a wheel. She went on saying that it's, quote, the picture of free, untrammeled womanhood. Okay. Right? So so different incarnations of bicycles had existed throughout the 1800s, but they weren't really conducive to everyday riding. They were more like impressive gags. Then in 1885, John Kemp Starley released his invention, the Rover Safety Bicycle. And that looked pretty much like our bikes today. And people went nuts. Economists actually called this period in the 1890s the bike boom. According to the League of American Wheelmen at the time, in 1896, for example, there were probably two and a half million bike riders in the U.S. People even threw bike parties. And all of this came at the perfect time for women who were seeking independence. The bicycle allowed them to move freely in a much bigger way without their husbands or fathers. 
I mean, I would imagine the bike also affected what they wore, too. I mean, a corset and big skirt is not conducive to riding a bike. Facts. The more popular cycling became, the more women began to shed their corset and instead wear bloomers. Those, incidentally, were named for a suffragist, Amelia Bloomer. (laughs) I bet some men were not too happy about that. Oh, there were people who were threatened, especially when women were changing their behaviors and dress. And you would even have doctors who tried to make the case that a bicycle could lead to nerves, insomnia, or, get this, something called bicycle face. Ha! Not bicycle face. (laughs) Yes. That's described as a woman who cycled too much and got both flushed and pale. I don't really know how that's possible to do at the same time. Yeah, I mean... I imagine women were not too afraid of bicycle face. No. The bike was there to stay. It gave women mobility and autonomy, something they would need while on the road to suffrage. At the corner of Lincoln and San Francisco, in Old Santa Fe Plaza, stands the Palace of Governors. Flanked by the Spanish colonial and Pueblo-style buildings, this has been the center of life in the New Mexico capital for hundreds of years. And one afternoon in October 1915, 150 suffragists filled up the plaza before starting their route. They'd head south to the Capitol building, back across the plaza, and then north to the federal building. And it was organized by suffragists in New Mexico who tended to be Anglo and Hispanic women. Kathleen Cahill is a Penn State University professor and the author of Recasting the Vote, How Women of Color Transformed the Suffrage Movement. Some marched on foot, but as we're well into the 20th century, many rode in cars decorated for the occasion. Women like Mrs. Trinidad Cabeza de Vaca, whose family owned one of the first cars in the city and women from powerful Hispanic families in the state. These are women who had been in different kinds of women's clubs, and uh, they're sort of an umbrella organization of the New Mexico Women's Club organization. And many of them start pushing for suffrage for similar reasons for women across the country. They are concerned about what's often called social housekeeping issues, so questions of women's labor and health issues. And they're working in their communities and sort of seeing some of these concerns that face particularly women and children and want to be able to participate in government to address them. And this is true for both um, the Hispanic women and the Anglo women. But some of these suffrages did have some other concerns. The Western U.S. came with its own complicated history. So Hispanic suffragists faced unique challenges. They were immigrants. Some weren't white. Some weren't citizens. And they didn't all speak English. The suffragists of New Mexico were living in an area that had only become a state three years earlier. If they were going to get the political and social power they wanted, they needed to make the national suffrage movement and the federal government listen. During that October 1915 parade, the suffragists of Santa Fe were also due for a visit from Alice Paul's National Woman's Party. The NWP was focused on amending the U.S. Constitution to secure women's right to vote. They needed New Mexico. And because of the way New Mexico's state constitution was written in 1912, New Mexican suffragists needed the National Woman's Party. Why? 
Well, it's because of the unique way in which New Mexico's state constitution was written. The women of the state knew they would have a tough time getting a suffrage amendment passed. A federal amendment was their only hope. Many other Western states have granted women suffrage, right? There have been campaigns in those states that have been successful. So New Mexico actually ultimately is really the only state in the West that doesn't grant women suffrage at the state level before 1920, in large part because of this constitutional issue that the Constitution was very hard to amend. It was hard to amend, precisely to protect religious and language freedom. In other words, to protect Spanish-speaking Catholics. Nina Otero Warren, who's one of the women that I look closely at, and also Aurora Lucero, uh, both of those women are in Santa Fe, are related to powerful male politicians who are right in the midst of these constitutional debates and are on the committees writing parts of the Constitution. And they are all working to try to protect Spanish language. The federal legislation, the Enabling Act that Congress passes to allow New Mexico to send their tentative constitution to Congress says that it should be, it should specify English only. And the folks making the constitution refuse that and actually put in some really strong protections for Spanish language rights and for um, religious affiliation. And for the suffrage movement, what this means is they actually make the state constitution extremely hard to amend. And so the women working for suffrage rights in New Mexico are going to find it really hard to change the state constitution. Suffragists like Otero Warren were working hard for the right to vote to improve the lives of women and children. In that sense, they were no different than their fellow activists across the country. But in addition to wanting to have a greater voice in laws and policy, they also insisted on protecting their Spanish language at a time when many other Americans were happy to do away with it. So what happened with the march? Well, it ended at the house of New Mexico Senator Thomas Catron. This was a man notoriously against women voting. In a 1917 article on suffrage that he introduced to the Senate, Catron wrote that women voting was, quote, detrimental to the human race and called the feminist an avowed enemy to the home. While in front of his house, four speeches were given asking the senator to support the federal amendment. But perhaps unsurprisingly, he was unconvinced. He listened and then reminded the marchers of man's God-given dominion over women. But the Hispanic suffragists of New Mexico had made their mark on the National Women's Party. Otero Warren became the group's state leader the following year, and eventually the first Latina to run for Congress. And she'd be able to vote in 1920 when New Mexico became the 32nd state to ratify the 19th Amendment. So I think it's time to go back to Mabel Pinghua Lee. Let's go to New York, 1912. She's 16 and living in Chinatown. She's been in New York since she came to the U.S. from Canton, now Guangzhou, when she was about five years old. Mabel's parents were teachers in a Baptist church and were raising their daughter to be a thoroughly modern woman. She was learning Chinese classics, but she also went to a New York public school, and she was also a feminist. At the corner of 7th Avenue and 47th Street in Manhattan, not far from Times Square, Young Chinese Americans like Mabel and prominent Chinatown community members met with suffrage leaders at the Peking restaurant to talk about women's rights ahead of a massive parade being planned down Fifth Avenue. 
Women like Anna Howard Shaw, president of the National American Women's Suffrage Association, Harriet Laidlow, a New York City suffragist, and Chinese community leaders like Mabel Lee and her parents, teachers, merchants, and missionaries, all immigrants to the U.S., none eligible to vote, and Mabel stood out. She was apparently very charismatic speaker and really could captivate an audience, and they really uh, take a liking to her. And so they ask her if she will lead or ride in the opening, right? There's a group of about 50 mounted riders who are going to open this massive parade. There's thousands of women that will be in it. And they ask Mabel Lee to be one of those riders at the beginning of the parade. In addition to winning over suffrage leadership, Mabel Lee also talked to them about the sexism she suffered and racial prejudice. At that point in her life, she was only 16 and had recently been accepted to Barnard College. Due to very harsh immigration laws, she was one of the very few Chinese women who lived in the U.S. in the early 20th century. In 1882, the United States passes what becomes known as the Chinese Exclusion Acts, which basically say that the number of people from China who are going to be allowed to immigrate is extremely small. There are a few small exceptions, but basically they're cutting off all immigrant laborers from China. And that's the vast majority of people who want to come to the United States, mostly Chinese men. Mabel's mother is allowed to come because she is a teacher. She's going to be working in the mission with him. And teachers are one of the exemptions to the Chinese Exclusion Acts. And Mabel, as her daughter, is able to come. So the Chinese Exclusion Acts uh, cuts off this ability for Chinese laborers to emigrate. It also states that Immigrants from China cannot become naturalized citizens, no matter what their class status or their immigration status. Because they could not become citizens, people like the Lees were not able to vote. And yet, many women like Mabel were passionate about suffrage. You have to wonder why. The reasons for this, according to Catherine Cahill, are more political than they are personal. You have to look at what was going on around the world and back home in China. Messages of the Chinese Revolution included women's rights and equal education. Their vision of the fight for suffrage is broader than just the United States. They're looking internationally, and they're very involved with the discussions around the Chinese Revolution of 1911. And so they're thinking about the building of a new Chinese republic. News of the Chinese Revolution comes to the United States. Newspapers cover it pretty heavily. There are lots of stories about the Chinese women who are involved in the revolution. And then with the establishment of that Chinese Republic, what's reported in the U.S. is that the Chinese have enfranchised their women. So for white suffragists, this doesn't fit with all of these American stereotypes about China being this very backwards country, so backwards that its people can't become citizens of the U.S. And so white American suffragists want to know more. So they reach out to Chinese women in the different Chinatowns in their communities and ask them what's going on and invite them to meetings, to suffrage meetings. And those Chinese women are very willing to go because it gives them this audience of, in some cases, really powerful national leaders. And white suffrage leaders are curious and want to use the idea of Chinese suffragists to kind of shame American men, look at this country that we think it's so backwards, but they've enfranchised women. You know, that's flipping everything we think about 
who's the civilized country on its head. Whereas the Chinese women are excited to have this audience and they use their platform to talk about the issues that they're concerned with, particularly um, education for Chinese children, the prejudice that they face, and of course, the immigration and citizenship policies of the U.S. The ways in which the Chinese and white suffragists both used their platform for their own causes was very much on display at the 1912 Fifth Avenue Parade. Mabel, her mother, and other Chinatown women proudly carried an American flag, as well as a sign that read, Light from China. Anna Howard Shaw had her own banner. It read, N-A-W-S-A, Catching Up with China. In other words, when it comes to voting rights, who are we calling backwards? That fall, Mabel Lee went to Barnard, and she continued to promote women in both the United States and China. She talks to white American suffragists, but she's also directing her arguments for women's suffrage to the Chinese Student Association and arguing that as they build their new nation, they can't leave women out. And in fact, she'll point to Britain and the United States and the suffrage movements there and say, look, these countries left women out. And so now they're trying to sort of bring them in. And it's a patch job, right? We're building a new nation. We can do it from the ground up. When New York women won the right to vote in 1917, Mabel was not a citizen. When the country guaranteed women's right to vote in 1920, she was not a citizen. But a year later, she became a Ph.D. in economics from Columbia University. She was the first Chinese woman to do so. Women like Mabel Lee didn't become citizens until 1943, when the Chinese Exclusion Act was repealed. Over two decades later, we don't know if Mabel Lee ever became a citizen or if she ever even reached the ballot box. But what we do know, she helped us get there. Yeah, yeah. You know who Mabel Lee was? Of course I do. She's the pastor of uh, the first Chinese Christian church on Pell Street. Was she? Yes. She took over for her father who passed away. And uh, my father attended that church. I learned that she was the first Chinese woman to get a PhD from Columbia. Right, Columbia, right, right. And she wanted to go back to China and uh, and, uh, I think to uh, educate the women back there. But her father passed away, so she she took over the church for him. Oh, wow. And you know what else I know? That she was suffragist. She was an activist and fought for the right of women to vote. What do you think about that? That was her dream, but she couldn't follow that dream, so... Do you know if she, if she got to vote? That I don't know. Next time on And Nothing Less, the revolution continues, and it's on a trip around the world. So in the early 20th century, the British suffrage movement takes off like a rocket. It generates a militant wing of the suffrage movement, which cannot find a place for itself in the suffrage mainstream. I'm Rosario Dawson. And I'm Retta. Thanks for listening. This was And Nothing Less from the Women's Suffrage Centennial Commission, the National Park Service, and PRX. This podcast was envisioned by WSCC Executive Director Anna Lehman with support from Kelsey Millay. 
The production team is executive producer Genevieve Sponsler, producer and audio engineer Samantha Gatsik, and writer and producer Robin Lynn. Special thanks to Sandra Lopez-Monsalve, who gathered the audio from the Mabel Lee Post Office. Original score by Erica Wong, with additional music from Epidemic Sound. The historical content used to create these stories was brought to you by the National Park Service. Teachers can download companion lesson plans at go.nps.gov slash suffrage podcast. For even more suffrage history, visit the Women's Suffrage Centennial Commission at womensvote100.org. I'm Allie Raisman, and I'm the host of a new podcast for the whole family called The Magic Sash. Join me, Lottie, and Isaiah on a time-traveling adventure to learn about the fight for women's right to vote. It's a story about people demanding their voices be heard. Listen to The Magic Sash wherever you find your podcasts.